Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out it against the, call out it against the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to it, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Ross. When I first moved to Australia, I knew that you, you guys drive on the left-hand side of the road, but I grew up learning to drive on the right-hand side of the road. Okay, so it's a bit of an adjustment because I grew up in America and they drive on the right side of the road, right? And when I was... Uh, we were here, I don't know, probably, we, we were like five days off the plane, right? I was living in Bris Vegas in, in Brisbane at the time. And I went to make a, it was early in the morning. I needed some coffee. We were still jet lagged. So I took Eliana with me, who was getting up at like three in the morning. And as I was heading out, we lived near not that busy of a street, maybe like Henry Perry Drive. And there was a big center divider in the middle. And my initial thinking was, as I left to make, as I head out to make a left turn, one needs to go around the center divider to make a left turn. In other words, that it puts you into the right lane. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. Because you naturally, especially when you're tired, you go to what's habit. But here you have to take a sharp left. And so I went left around the center divider it's like six in the morning, and I'm driving along, still, you know, doing this. And I noticed some people on the side of the road looking at me, and they're, and they're like this. And I'm like, wow, people in Australia are really friendly, you know, and <laughs> waving back at them and keep driving. And then it dawns on me, I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. And so I quickly, and there's a center divider there, right? So I quickly pulled, turned. Thankfully, there was no oncoming traffic. And when I got to church the next day, I was talking with this total Queensland country sort of bogan guy who's a good guy, who's a friend of mine. And I said, I told the whole story, and he go, oh, yeah, you had Shaka Yui, didn't you? 
and I said, "Are you speaking English? What are you? What, what? Sorry, hey, hey, hey chaka yui." And I was like, "Chuck a yui? Oh, you mean I mean needed to make a U-turn?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah." And I was like, "Chuck a yui." And that's actually what repentance is like. We are born depraved. We are we actually born God hating, and the Bible tells us that if we are to be saved, we are actually to be followers of God, that we need to, as it were, chuck a yui in our life, in our, the way that the habits that, that we live, the way that we live our lives. So today I want to talk about this idea of repentance. Repentance. Now I don't know what first comes to your mind when you hear that word repentance. Maybe you think of a guy with a sandwich board or some signboard screaming at people outside of a stadium, repent, you're going to hell. Maybe that's what you think when you hear the word repentance. Or perhaps you picture a fiery Baptist preacher saying, turn or burn. Or, or, or maybe you think repentance is, ah, you, you, when you hear that word, you sort of personalize it. You hear repentance, and you think, ah, that's what I did years ago at that camp, or that's what I did years ago at that revival meeting. There can be a lot of misunderstandings of what true biblical repentance is. And so what I'd like to do is we, as we look at this account in the book of Jonah, I want to talk about what repentance is, sort of what, what it is, and then how it works, and then what it is not. Because there can be a lot of common mistakes of what repentance is, and someone assumes that they are repenting, but they're actually self-deceived. They're not repenting. And so we'll close our time saying what repentance is not. So first, what it is. Secondly, sort of how it works. And then last, we'll talk about what it is not what it isn't. So that said, that's where we're headed. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. So here is Jonah. He's just been spat out onto dry land. The last 36 hours of his life must have certainly been topsy-turvy, smelly, fishy, exactly, Judy. I mean, here's a guy that tried to run away from God. God, the earth is the Lord's, right? And everything in it, the world and all who live in it. But yet he tries to run away from God and so the Lord hurls casts a big storm onto this sea that Jonah, in his voyage to flee away, and he is cast overboard by the providence of God, we learned last week. And rather than die in the sea, the Lord graciously provides a fish to swallow up Jonah. And he is in the belly of the fish, the great fish, three days, three nights, and then is spat out. And as he's there, you almost wonder, as he's now thinking, wow, glad that's over. 
I wonder if God's going to call someone else. Because he th- looks at me and goes, you're useless, right? I'm not going to use you now. But in God's kindness and in God's grace, both for Jonah and for the sake of the Ninevites, the Lord comes to him a second time. You see that there? In chapter 3, verse 1, I mean, the Lord comes to Jonah the second time saying, and he doesn't change. Do you notice this? It's the same thing he said to Jonah back in chapter 1. Arise, see it there? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and tell and, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's interesting, the Lord hasn't changed his method or his message. Have you noticed that? Still calling Jonah. And he, he's, he, Jonah is not to give his opinion. He's not to give his thought reflections about God or, or what he hopes to say to the Ninevites. The message that God gives him. The message that I give to you. And so he's off to this great city. And when he gets there, it says, if you notice in the text, it takes three days journey. Three days. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, maybe that seems like the reason it says three days, it's probably because it's a massive city, right? In order, it would take three days to go around the circumference of a city this great, this size. And other people will look at that and go, oh, maybe, but maybe, maybe Nineveh was actually four different districts, And Jonah was going through these different districts, as it were. Kind of like the Central Coast. The Central Coast, you know, is it would take you at least three days to go from, say, Umina to Gwandalan or or, uh, Budgiewoy or whatever, right? And then not to mention out west or out here. And so that could be it. Now, regardless of if it's four different districts or if it's just that big of a circumference to where it, it takes you to go around it, what is interesting, I mean, did you see... There's been all of this hassle to get Jonah to this, fine, to this place where he's finally there, right? I mean, from the storm to the fish to all of this. And yet his message seems like it's a tweet. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's pretty, that's pretty brief. Some of you wish the sermons were that brief here, right? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Overturned, it's actually the same word that is used about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, Right? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, overturned. Is that all he said, though? Like, did Jonah just walk around? Hi, my name is Jonah. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Hi, my name's Jonah. 40 more days and Nineveh will be over. Oh, wait, what? What did he just say? Oh, there he goes. There he goes. Now, I mean, this is just simply a summation, as it were, of a, a, probably a greater sermon. It's just capturing the idea, the essence of what Jonah is saying. There's, there's no doubt that as he entered different bits of the city and preached extensively about God's repentance, or sorry, about God's displeasure with Nineveh and their need to repent. It doesn't matter how long the message was or how big the city was or if it was in four districts. The key, and I want you to see this here, is in verse 5 because this is a great model of repentance. In verse 5, notice... Notice the response. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, how was this belief displayed? Keep reading. It's by their outward actions, right? They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. 
from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people of Nineveh believed in the God that Jonah preached. And they matched their inward belief by their outward actions. They, put, they, they, they fasted. They put on sackcloth. They're gutted, as it were. Like Jonah was gutted when he sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And what does Jonah do? He, he puts on sackcloth and ash, as it were. It's the same idea here, that the, the sackcloth was a thick, coarse cloth, usually made of goat's hair, and you wore it to symbolize the rejection of earthly comforts. And fasting is actually normally done at a funeral. You picture a funeral, and there's times of, rightly so, of, of weeping, right? Times of, of sadness. That's how they're responding, but not to a funeral, but because of their own sin. And this repentance is massive. It's not just this sackcloth and ash, this, this fasting, is not just for the poor people of Nineveh, why, you know, the servants, why the other people get to remain in their high towers, as it were. This is for everybody, every social class, as it were. From rich to middle class to poor, all are called, even the king himself steps off his royal throne. You guys have pictured that. Imagine that. Even the king exchanges his robe for this sackcloth and for this ash. And what's the king saying? In essence, I'm not the king. God is. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. It's incredible. And here's where we get this picture of repentance. Don't miss it. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not eat, let, sorry, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, Notice the, don't miss this, notice the words here. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Turn from his evil way. Hebrew word for repentance is shuv or shav. It has the idea of to do a turnabout, to like chucking a yui, basically. And that's what we see happening with these Ninevites. Look at verse 10. That's right. When God saw what they did, you see that? How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he wanted to do to them, right? He would do to them and he did not do it. So what is repentance then? Well, repentance is a change of direction. When we ask the question, what is repentance? We can see it here that it's a turning. It's chucking a yui. It's, it's a change of direction. That, that is to turn from trusting in yourself, your own morality, to trusting in Jesus alone and his righteousness. Basically, repentance calls for a repudiation of the old way of life and a turning to God. My dad spent a little bit of time in church my dad is to this day he is not a christian 
And one time my dad and I were hanging out, and I am concerned because I want my dad to know Christ. And so I said, hey, dad, you know, why is it that you think you'll go to heaven? Because he's he was pretty confident. He said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I think I'll still go to heaven. I said, well, why is it? Why is it that you think you'll go to heaven, Dad? And he says, well, I, I, I believe that, I'm, I, I trust. I, I guess I just trust that, that God loves me. I said, well, yeah, but you see, Dad, your, your life, you've got things clearly that are against what the Bible says. And I'm not talking about, you know, he makes a couple of mistakes. These are clear neon signs in his life that the Bible is not unclear about. The Bible says it's sin. And those who live this way, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So according to the Bible, Dad, you're not going to heaven. Not, not my, you know, don't get mad at me and say, how dare you, son, I brought you into this world, I could take you out. He didn't say that. But I said, according to the Bible, your, your belief, as it were, your trust is false trust. Trusting in God is connected with repentance. Listen to Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Listen, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. You hear that? Return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The language there is clear, isn't it? Repentance from sin and coming to God for pardon are mentioned together. They, they go hand in hand. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, Right? Real people that lived in a real time. It's a real letter. And one of the very first things he says about them, the reason that Paul can say that they're a Christian is because of their repentance. They're turning from idols. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You hear that? You turn to God from idols. The turning to God involved the abandonment of idols. Real repentance will produce a change in behavior. Now, I want you to go to the left in your Bible. I want to show you a passage that might just blow your mind. In the book of Judges, if you have not read the book of Judges, buckle your seatbelt. Like, it will trump any dodgy movie that you've seen today or in, the, in your entire life. The book of Judges, the nation of Israel has uh, continued, even though they've now entered the promised land, they continue to disobey God, and so God sets up these judges to do just that, to, to bring judgment on them. And in Judges chapter 10, once again, the nation of Israel is disobedient. And so once again, God acts to judge. Look at Judges chapter 10. So in Judges 10, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
and serve the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Amorites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. Look at, for 18 years they oppressed the people of Israel. Think back to 2002. I mean, I was just, that's 18 years ago, right? Like, I was just moved back from Australia and had long hair and wanted to get married, and it was a long time ago. It's like a whole other life away. I didn't have kids, and anyway. Where were you in 2002? I don't know, but that's a long time, right? 18 years. Some of you aren't even 18 years old. So like for your whole life, you've known nothing but oppression from these nations. Why? Because God's a meanie? No, because these people have sinned, and that's what God warned. Now look. Notice here, verse 9. And... The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. Twelve tribes entered different bits of the land, right? So that Israel was severely distressed. Well, yeah. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Yes, that is true, guys. So, we're so sorry, God. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. And they, they're distressed. It says they're distressed. And, notice, and the Lord, this is, this is the part that might blow your mind. What does God do? He goes, oh, you're distressed? That's the last thing that I want you to be is distressed. In fact, I exist as God so that you're not distressed so that you can have your best life now. That's why, I, that's why I'm all about. Is that what goes on? No, 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 look. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Moabites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Go pray to your idols. Unbelievable. And so what did the people of Israel do? Okay, God, we get it. Spank us. Give us a swat. But do it now and help us. Look what it says. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Like now. No response. No response. Until, until they repented. So look, they put away the foreign gods from among them and, and served the Lord and he became impatient over their misery. It's not until... Not until they repented does something shift. Repentance is a change in direction. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just shedding a tear and you know that you're, 
you did something wrong to someone and you say, I'm so, oh, I, feel, I feel bad, it's actually changing your behavior. It's actually doing a turnabout, a 180 degree turn. Now notice here, I want us to go back to Jonah, but as we do, as we talk about what repentance is, I said repentance, right, is a change in direction. Repentance is also this. Repentance is a foundational element of the gospel. Repentance is a foundational element of the gospel. Often we shrink wrap the gospel to this. Do you believe Jesus loves you? Yes. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Yes. Well, make sure that you come up here to the front or that you raise your hand, ask Jesus into your heart, and bang, you're a Christian. What's missing from that? Oh, there's stacks missing from that gospel presentation. But one of the things that's missing is repentance. You see, friend, listen, if repentance is removed from the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. In the Old and New Testaments, repentance and faith go hand in hand. When a person is born again, truly born again, it's not that they first turn from sin and then trust in Christ, or first trust in Christ and later in life, like 20 years later, turn from sin. But they occur simultaneously. Picture like a coin. You know your guys' little $2 coins or $1 coins or whatever? On one side says faith and the other side says repentance. It's the same coin. It's the same thing. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. It's not that, listen, it's not that you accept Jesus as Savior and maybe later in life accept him as Lord. They go hand in hand. Let me read a couple Bible passages to you. Maybe you've been taught that, by the way. It was very prevalent in the 80s called easy, belie easy believism. Just accept Jesus as Savior and you can just be a, you know, you're off the rails sort of saint. You're a backslidden Christian. But that's just not what the Bible describes. Let me show you what I mean here. Ezekiel 33. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. You're like, okay, well, that's Ezekiel. I mean, he's pretty gnarly, so, you know, fine. Okay, when Jesus begins his ministry, he says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later on, when Jesus is teaching, he's right in the middle of his ministry, he gathers crowds around him. You can just picture this. And he says this in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever who saved his life will lose it. And after Jesus is crucified, 
and is about to ascend into heaven, he says this in Luke 24. In Luke 24, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, right? He's talking about what just happened. And on the third day, rise from the dead. And listen, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that's why not long after this, Peter, as he addresses the crowd and talks about why Jesus was crucified, it says they are cut to the heart and they ask this question, what must we do to be saved? And you know what Peter says? Just believe God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is not an optional add-on. It's essential to the Christian life and identifies those who have been saved. Listen, we're not saved by our repentance, but our repentance gives evidence to the fact that we actually have been saved. Does that make sense? Repentance is a foundational element to the gospel. You take repentance out, you don't have the gospel anymore. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem captures this really nicely. And I'm going to read this to you. It can come up here on the PowerPoint. Listen to what he says. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, When we realize that genuine saving faith must be accompanied by genuine repentance for sin, it helps us to understand why some preaching of the gospel has such inadequate results today. If there is no mention of the need for repentance, sometimes the gospel message becomes only believe in Jesus and be saved without any mention of repentance at all. But this watered-down version of the gospel does not ask for a wholehearted commitment to Christ. Commitment to Christ, if genuine, must include a commitment to turn from sin. Preaching the need for faith without repentance is preaching only half of the gospel. It will result in many people being deceived, thinking that they have heard the Christian gospel and tried it, but nothing happened. They might even say something like, I accepted Christ as Savior over and over again, and it never worked. Yet, they never really did receive Christ as their Savior, for he comes to us in his majesty and invites us to receive him as he is, the one who deserves to be and demands to be absolute Lord of our lives as well. When Jesus approaches a bunch of bogan, rough fishermen on the shores of Galilee, what does he say to them? Bow your head, close your eyes, invite me to be your personal savior, would you please? I just want to be your friend. No. You know your Bibles. Jesus says, come and follow me. You see, friend, this following is an ongoing following for them and for us that are true Christians. It's not just a, 
you understand repentance is not just a one-time event like a flu shot. Like, oh, I, I did that once back in 1972, I think, at the Billy Graham Crusades or whatever. Repentance is an ongoing event that marks a true Christian. You know the famous verse, we probably, maybe, you've probably heard this. If, you, if you've spent maybe, I don't know, a couple years in a church, you've heard, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, that's plural, isn't it? Did you hear that? Not if you confess your sin, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness, right? 1 John 1, 9. Spurgeon coined it so nicely this way. Spurgeon said, we never leave off repenting because we never leave off sinning. We never leave off repenting because we never leave off sinning. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Because a lot of people think that the gospel is simply and only what non-Christians must believe in order to be saved. You know, then you, you move on to deeper things like the moral challenges and how-tos of discipleship. But once God rescues sinners, his plan isn't to steer them beyond the gospel, but to move them more deeply into it. The gospel, in other words, isn't just the power of God to save you, it's the power of God to grow you once you're saved. Because, right, Christians remain, I don't know about you, but I sinned this week. I sinned this morning. And so, as sinners, even after we're converted, the gospel must be the medicine that we take daily. We need to have, our lives need to be marked by repentance. Repentance. But often, people can confuse repentance with other things. So here's two of them. What's close to repentance, but you ever the place close but no cigar? I don't know, smoking. So anyway, don't get hung up on that. Close but no cigar. Here's two things. Number one, what do people confuse with repentance? People think repentance is the same as good intentions, right? If you prayed a little prayer, but if you don't do anything in terms of changing, you've had great spiritual interest, but not a turnaround. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives this parable of these two sons. And he says this, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? Well, the first one. Second one was just a brown nose. I'll go, sir, but didn't do it. Had great intentions, didn't he? But he didn't do it. Good intentions are not the same as good actions. Just because you have intentions to one day return from that sin is not the same thing as actually doing it. So be careful that you're not confusing true biblical repentance with just good intentions. And also be careful that you're not confusing repentance with just feeling sorry, feeling bad. 
Often we feel bad about something. Because if, if you have half a conscience and, and you're a jerk to, say, your spouse or kids or friend, you feel bad about it. But feeling bad about it is not the same as repenting. The rich young ruler felt sad after he heard what Jesus called him to do. But did his sadness lead him to repentance? No, he went away. He walked away sad. He left. He bailed. Just feeling bad about sin or even shedding a tear over it does not suffice to genuine repentance. Unless it is coupled with a sincere decision to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You know, sometimes we're great at conviction and lousy at application. You could even sit under, say, my preaching the last year and a half and go, oh, I feel kind of bad. Oh. Anyway, back to, back, back to the same old thing, back in the saddle again, but there's not actual change in your life. Beware, friend. You could be self-deceived. You could think that you're a Christian, but you're actually you've only had a good intentions or you felt bad because, you know, you were a jerk or whatever. It's not the same. Was that helpful? Yeah. All right, now, as we close, I am, I, I, there, there's a lot of stuff on the surface there in terms of repentance, right? But sometimes we need to pull back and say, okay, how is this consistent with the character of God? And how is this consistent with people and man and free will and choices and all of those things. So I have, in closing, one theological nugget that I will offer you, but everyone is going to vote. Compulsory voting, it's Australia. Don't you love it? You're gonna take a vote if you want it. It's five minutes. It's a five minute little theological nugget to sort of, rather than just see what's sort of on the text at this level, sort of pull up and see something perhaps a little bit greater and maybe help you to engage at a more theological level with the text, but I'm not gonna force it on you. So I'm gonna ask you, it's up to you. If you want it, it's yours. If you don't, no, no bottom me, as they say in Hawaii, all right? So if you're keen, raise your hand for the theological nugget. It, I'm not gonna feel bad if you're not keen, Raise your hand. No one's probably, yeah, of course. No one's, you, even if you're not keen, not going to raise your hand because you look mean or whatever. It seems, Ross, can you help me? Can you do that? If you're keen, raise hand. Just go for it. Okay. So, go back to Jonah 3. Five minutes. Tommy, Rob, right? Five minutes. I say that in the elders' meetings and it's usually not five minutes. But I'm working on that. That's my New Year's resolution. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's right, yeah. Look at Jonah 3.10. Um, Jonah 3.10, it says, when God saw what they did, right, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Or if you have a King James Bible, probably no one in here does, but if you do, it says God repented. God repented. So here's the question. Did God know that this would take place with the Ninevites 
Or does God sometimes change his mind based on people's choices? Follow me? Does, did, God already, did God plan for this in the future? Did God ordain for this? Or did God say, look, might happen, it might not. Roll the dice, baby. And then it happens and he goes, high five, Gabriel. Let's act on this. I, was, I knew this was a possibility that this would happen, but I didn't know infinitely with perfect knowledge that this would happen. Make sense? Some people would advocate for this. They believe that God's knowledge and involvement of the future is conditional on human beings. Basically, the Lord knows some things that will occur, but not all of them. You know, he can sort of take an educated guess. Take the events for tomorrow example. God knows a realm of possibilities, but not certainties. In other words, to pick on you, Rob, Rob Wright will probably wake up at about 6.30. He'll want to go to oomph and get his soy flat. <laughs> Predictable accountant over here, right? But if I'm God, I have a general idea that that's what Rob Wright will do, but I just don't know that for certain. And I definitely haven't ordained it for certain. I just, I sort of look at Rob and I go, oh yeah, look, he's probably going to wake up around 6.30. Oh wow, he woke up at 7.15 today. Must be tired. Must be worn out from the elders meeting the night before or whatever. Oh look, he's actually not going to get a soy flat white. He's going to have a tea. Oh wow. I, I was aware that he might have, like, you know, picture... Option A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Does that make sense? And Rob chose G, but I thought it was going to be A. So the future, in other words, is open to God. He has all these possibilities, like a smorgasbord, and he goes, just not sure which one. I have a, I have a hunch it's going to be option A, but wow, it's option G. The future is open. This, this is, is that making sense? This, this is actually a... a a theological belief, it's called open theism. Open, you hear that? Open, the future's open. They're settled and unsettled things. Open theism. Now, some of you might be thinking, why on earth would anyone believe that? Like, right? Like, why, why would someone? Well, because if you look there, it does say, sort of a flat-footed reading, but it does say, God changed his mind in essence, right? God repented. So when you look at that, you say, well, maybe God wasn't fully aware that this would happen. Maybe some of the future is settled and some of the future isn't settled. It, it seems to teach that God changed his mind about the destruction he planned to carry out on Nineveh. So was God caught off guard here or, or did he, in fact, change? Well, what we have to do is not build an entire theology off of one verse, first of all. We have to step back and say, what does the whole Bible teach about God's knowledge, about God's nature? So the Bible teaches that God is unchanging in his nature, purposes, essence, and word. It's what's called immutable Right? Seasons change, people change, but the Lord remains the same. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
It also says in the book of James that God does not change like shifting shadows. Once the Lord has decreed something, it cannot be changed. It will come to pass. Listen to Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Did you hear that? Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Okay, so now back to this idea of open theism, and we're almost there. We're almost landing it. At the start of Jonah, God said he would judge Nineveh, right? Which is a real expression of God's present attitude or intention with the current situation. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. If they don't, ah, get stuff, Jonah. They would be overturned. When the situation in Nineveh changes, then and only then God's expression will also change. God sees the wickedness in Nineveh and sends Jonah with a message. The purpose of this message was to bring about repentance. The key is once the people repented, the situation was different and God responded to that transformation, to that repentance. Listen closely. God did not change his intentions towards the Ninevites. They were the ones that changed toward him. And on the basis of that change, God could deal with them in grace rather than in judgment. Does that make sense? Jeremiah 18 says this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Does that sound familiar? So Jeremiah 18 makes it quite clear. Now, I wrote a paper on this for those of you that are just dying to hear more information about this. Don't come rush up here at once. But if you would like some information, it's actually one of my first papers that I wrote for my Bible college. And it's critiquing this guy. Because you think, who believes this stuff? Look, there's quite some influential thinkers out there. People you may even think that, oh, no way. They, like, I would say no one that's orthodox, no one that actually is really believing the Bible. I'd say once you embrace this open theism, it's, you're off the rails. But look, there's some interesting guys out there. They're trying to... There's one guy in particular, and this, if you get the paper, this will talk about it. Greg Boyd, he's a pastor in America. And Greg Boyd has a book called God of the Possible. You hear that? God of the Possible. What does that sound like? It's open theism, right? And a friend of mine wrote a, a book in response to him called, um, uh, what is, honey, what's Bruce Ware's book called? Uh, God's, oh man, it'll come to me. But one of the things that, that Greg Boyd says is this, and I'll close. Greg Boyd looks, says, you know, Jesus has an idea that Peter would betray him based on the dude is, a bit topsy-turvy. He didn't know, so he kind of looks at the makeup and DNA of Peter and says, I bet you're going to disown me three times <laughs> before the rooster crows. And um, look, pe people are buying into this stuff. Um, you, you, you have to, so hopefully, you might even have some friends that actually are buying into this stuff. It's good to think through if you're... Um, 
God's Lesser Glory. That's the title of the book. Bruce Ware. That's my, that's my friend of mine. God's Lesser Glory. Anyway, that's what open theism is. So Now, if you're mad at me, blame the people that voted yes that they wanted to hear that five-minute theological <laughs> lecture at the end, okay? Don't blame me. You voted, all right? So, but... Carry on the conversations, because it's a worthwhile conversation. If you're interested, I wrote the paper. Go see Jillian afterwards. But let me just close with this. I hope and I pray, beyond all that theological nugget stuff, I hope and I pray, friend, that, that you haven't fallen into the lie that you can be a Christian and live in sin, that you can just accept Jesus as Savior now, sort of tick that box, and live the rest of your life and, and think that you're going to go to heaven when you die. I, hopefully it's been pretty clear, just not only from the book of Jonah, but looking at the Bible as a whole, that repentance and faith actually are two sides of the same coin. They actually go hand in hand. And so just, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to do this. This is a hard one. I'd encourage you to do this. When you go have a coffee, you know, rather than talk about the weather or whatever, you can do that anywhere. I'd encourage you to ask someone that's close to you here, is my life marked by repentance? Do you, have you seen this repentance in my life? Ask yourself that question. And, you know, get ready for some interesting conversations. And the person that they're asking you that, really to help them, you know, it would be a, such a disservice to you if, if you have doubts that this person is genuinely repenting and is genuinely a Christian, it would be the biggest disservice of you to say, oh, yeah, 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 nah, yeah, nah, 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 you're good, you're good, you're good. There are people here in this room who my conversations, I go, I don't think that person's a Christian. I don't think their life has, is actually marked by repentance. So you can actually, if you want to come talk to me, we can have a long conversation about it. I'd like to have that conversation. Okay, we're not saved by repenting, but our repenting shows that we have been saved. Make sense? So, so go do something with this information. Go have significant, substantial conversations. Forget talking about the weather or the footy game. Do that later. So that's my challenge to you. All righty, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for your word. Thank you that your word is clear and it cuts like a knife. Help us to apply what we have learned and to have our lives marked by repentance. Lord, as, as Rob prayed earlier, may our lives be a witness to the community here, Wyoming, Narara, and abroad. Uh, Lord, that though not perfect, we would be able to continue to come back to your forgiveness, that we would continue to be repenting. As your word says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.